This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Lord, as we turn to your word, uh, we are relying upon you and your promises, your spirit's presence and your people to speak, O oh Lord, through your word. And so we invite your, your presence, your grace to illumine our hearts and minds and cause your word to bear the fruit of what we've just sung, Lord, in Christ's name, amen. I ask you, if you would, to open to Psalm 19, and if you are able to remain standing, if you could, Psalm 19. Good morning to you all. Good to see you, and uh, good morning to those of you who are at home or away, streaming online. This is Reformation Sunday, and uh, we have been singing about standing on the Word of God, and we're turning then to Psalm 19. If you would, let's hear the Word of the Lord. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring Forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent. From hidden faults, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of God. I pray he would bless it the reading of it to your hearts this morning. You may have a seat. Well, as many of you know, the, the, the church of the 15th century uh, was filled with corruption, and the gospel had long been obscured, and it was in need of reform. And the Protestant Reformation of which we are some heirs, 
was a recovery, not the creation, but the recovery of the central tenets or doctrines of the gospel, the evangel. And eventually those central tenets or doctrines of the gospel became encapsulated in brief slogans known as the five solas of the Reformation. I know many of you are familiar with them, some of you are not. Uh, you have a bookmark, I believe, provided for you in the bulletin this morning. And those five solas are based on the Latin term sola, which means alone. Uh, the five solas are what? They are sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the final authority for faith and practice. And Scripture alone teaches us that salvation comes to us by sola gratia, grace alone through the instrumentality of sola fide, faith alone in the person and merits of solo Cristo, Christ alone. And because of all of this, it all redounds to the glory of God alone. Soli del gloria. Those are the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, essential to the core of our faith. There are things that we can disagree on, and Lord knows we have, huh? <laughs> but these things we must hold together for the sake of our eternal lives. Now, it's said that the formal cause, or the, I say, the foundational principle upon which the Reformation was based was upon that first one, sola scriptura. Again, scripture alone is the final authority in, for faith and practice. That is to say, not scripture plus human tradition and not the sole authority. Why? Because Scripture itself delegates authority to the household, to the church, and, and so forth. But it is the final authority. In other words, nothing judges Scripture. Scripture judges everything else. And why is that the case? It's because of what Scripture is and what Holy Scripture does. That's why. Which is why we have... Before us this morning, Psalm 19, in particular, verses 7 through 14 that I want us to look at. Now, this is not, this morning, this is not a comprehensive uh, defense of the doctrine of Scripture from uh, systematic theology, put it that way. We are looking here at Psalm 19 and its, and its beauty and what it has to say to us. I believe most of us have the conviction that Scripture alone is the is the final authority for faith and practice. You know, I, as I was preparing this week, I thought this week, what would my life be like if God hadn't spoken to me through this book? You know? Where would I be? And it just took me down a road of reflection. And I ask you today, if you're a Christian this morning, brother and sister, just take a, a few moments and consider that question. Where would you you be what would your life be like without God's revelation without a word from God about God we wouldn't know God 
without a word from God about you and me and what we're truly like, and we, we wouldn't have an understanding of human life, the value of human life. We wouldn't know what truly matters forever, and we would be building our lives on sand. Where would your life be without the Word of God? You would be spiritually lost, spiritually deaf, and blind. And your life, I think, like mine, would look, look very, very different. Um, and that's where I was, spiritually lost, dead, blind. A man, a young man in my late teens, early, right about 20 almost, uh, governed by my self-centeredness, my own lusts, my own, my own appetites, ruled by them, controlled by them, when uh, a friend of mine gave me, gave me this. And as I shared two weeks ago, I read it after that Philippian jailer moment of a near-death experience, you know, when he shook my life. <laughs> and I read through it, and I read the Gospel of John, as I told you recently, over and over. And I met in this written word, the living word. I met the Lord Jesus Christ, and my life changed. Everything's changed because of it. And that's because of what Scripture is and what Scripture does. And what Scripture does supremely is reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory, in His identity as Lord and Savior, in His mercy, in His grace, in His power, in His truth. You know. We are in a very tumultuous cultural moment, and we have been for some time, and Beloved, the Bible is under greater criticism now because it seems, it seems archaic, it seems out of step with where the culture is going, and it seems unable to, unbelieving eyes, unable to address the problems or what is at the root of our problems. But Scripture alone leads anyone to Christ who alone transforms lives of people who then transform culture. And so it's of great importance that we consider what Scripture is and what Scripture does from Psalm 19 this morning. Let me say something about Psalm 19 then to introduce it. You note there is it is a Psalm of David. And what David does in this well-known Psalm is he expresses his admiration, his admirations for God's God's witness to himself, God's glory revealed in creation, verses 1 through 6, and God's glory revealed in Scripture, verses 7 through 9, and then his response to that in verses 10 through 14. God's glory revealed in creation, he admires him for it, praises him. God's glory revealed in Holy Scripture. Uh, God has left an enduring testimony to himself in creation. And he's left an enduring testimony to himself in Scripture, in the Word of God. And so it is with those who are made in his image as well. You know, uh, creative people or you know, artists or builders, let's say, or designers. Uh, you can think of many of them. They, they leave uh, a testimony to their skill in the things they have created or designed or built. Some of you who are 
part of this church, you know that I have family in Italy and I've had several occasions to visit there. It is said, UNESCO says that they consider that Italy contains about 60% of the world's fine art. And you go there, and if you have the privilege of the experience that I've had, and you see the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling of it. Or you see uh, La Pietà, or you see, Br- uh, Brune- what was his name? Br- Brunelleschi's um, dome in, in Florence, you know, works of architecture, uh, works of art. What are you seeing? You are seeing that these individuals, because of the skill that they possess, they have left an enduring testimony to themselves, right? And David is glorifying, praising God for the enduring testimony he's left to himself in creation. The heavens declare, he says, the glory of God. Every day, you see, his handiwork, he says in verse 1 through 6, and then he turns the corner in verses 7 through 14. The the law of the Lord is perfect. And here's God's testimony to himself in in Scripture. And so he sees them in both. When he says that, when he glories, first of all, in God's testimony in creation, in verses 1 through 6, this is revelation that is available to all. Everyone, everywhere, all the time. There is nowhere on this globe that isn't affected by morning and night. (laughs) The sun and the moon. All the time, you see. That's what theologians call general revelation. But how does David know that God is the cause of that? How does David know to praise God for what he sees in the heavens. It's because he has met God in the second revelation, which is the Word of God, you see. The Scriptures, God's, what, we, what theologians call God's special revelation, not available to all, all the time, everywhere, but available here for us and scripturated, written down. As clear a voice as creation has, Paul says in Romans 1 that in creation we see the divine nature, these invisible attributes such as God's power, as clear a voice as creation has apart from God's Word, His special revelation, that that revelation in creation will fall on deaf ears, you see, because we need the Word of God to enlighten our eyes, you see, so that we know who is behind this glorious creation. And that's what David has experienced. I'm I'm emphasizing this because I want you to see the flow here. I want you to see the connection in the author, David, here. Some say, what what happened in verse 14? It's like he changes. What's going on here? David is able to see the glory of God in creation because he was first able to see the glory of God in his revelation, his word. And there he came to know him. As one commentator said, only someone whose understanding of the creation is informed by Scripture, could write Psalm, one, Psalm 19. And that's what David is doing here for us. There's also a very subtle hint here from David's use of the Hebrew terms for the names of God. 
in the first six verses, verse 1 there, the heavens declare the glory of Elohim, mighty God, the mighty one, the law of Yahweh is perfect. He changes the name there to God's covenant name, God's personal relational name with his people. And so there's a transition there. Now, verses 7 through 14, which is what we're looking at now, they, we can divide that into two sections. Verses 7 through 9 are a hymn of praise that celebrates what Scripture is and does. And then verses 10 through 14 is David's response to Scripture, which should be ours as well by the Holy Spirit. Now, when he, when he praises God for what Scripture is, he uses various terms for Scripture, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the rules, so forth. Uh, these aren't like, it's not like he's talking about different sections per se. These are almost synonyms for that very first word, the law, which has come to mean uh, to be used in his own context here to refuse to God's revelation of his will. So let's walk through these, beloved. What is true of the Torah, the law? It's true of all Scripture. Okay. So, in terms of its qualities, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The instruction, Torah, what Moses wrote, which came to be a comprehensive word for, for all of God's revealed will. Scripture, we could say, is perfect. It's perfect, which means what? It means it has integrity. Uh, it is without error. Scripture is flawless. It's not misleading. It is, it, is this, it is the rule, the standard, therefore, by which we measure everything. Nothing judges Scripture. Scripture judges everything else because it is perfect. Now, I, we know that, that there is mystery in Scripture. We know that there are difficulties. We know that to the unbelieving eye, there are apparent contradictions. But Scripture invites anyone to seek and dig and research, not just on the surface, and many an account of those who set out to disprove Scripture <laughs> only to find themselves captivated by the Word, the perfect Word of the Lord. What does it do? It revives the soul. It restores life. This word can mean, it can mean to restore. It could be referred to repentance. It brings a person back is the idea. From where? Well, if it was from sin and brokenness in that way, it would be by repenting. But, but it means in a larger way to restore, and it can turn a person back. It's turned you back, I bet, from hopelessness. Turned you back from disillusionment. Derek Kidner, one of the well-known commentators on the Psalms, he says, Scripture has, the, he says, the power to show you who you are, to restore your identity, to bring you back. The word heals, it brings you back when you're doubting, when you're disillusioned. It, it brings you back telling you, you are a child of God. You are fine with God. You are at peace with the living God. Restores the soul. He does 
see your troubles. And he does care for you. I think probably all of you, I hope, have experienced that. Secondly, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word testimony simply means witness. It's sometimes translated covenant, and it's applied, for example, to the two tablets of stone. That's the testimony of the Lord. Remember, they were kept in the ark, the covenant, because it was a witness to, to the Lord and to the covenant that, that he made. And what is, what is a witness? A witness is someone who testifies in a court of law as to what is, what is true. And so what, what he's telling us is that Scripture, the Bible, is God's witness. It is God's testimony. And this testimony is sure, he says. It's absolutely reliable. It's trustworthy. Scripture will not lead you astray. Scripture will not lie to you. It does not bear false witness about what it means to be a human being or a woman or a man. It is true in what it says about life, about pain in this world, about disease, about forgiveness. It is sure. It's reliable. It's true in what it says about the future, about resurrection. See, His testimony is that he will raise you and me from the dead in the new heavens and new earth. And that is sure. God does not lie. That's what David is getting at here. And what does that do? What does God's testimony do to people? It, he says, making wise the simple. Who are the simple in the Bible? The foolish. Who are the foolish in the Bible? The foolish are those who have wrong beliefs about God. False beliefs about God and therefore false beliefs about life, about purpose, about humanity and so forth. And false belief about what really matters and what brings, what brings ultimate, lasting, enduring joy that transcends our circumstances. The fool finds that somewhere else. He, has, he or she has false beliefs. And as a result, what happens? They wander into all kinds of trouble and pain and Danger and affliction. This is where I was as a 19-year-old. And God's word, his testimony is sure. And it does not lead you in those paths, but leads you on the right path. It brings wisdom into our lives so that we are no longer remain fools, right? <laughs> but we have a right worldview. Now, it doesn't all happen at once, does it? He keeps renewing our mind with with the purity of the Word of God. You ever think back of some of the decisions you made a long time ago? You ever think back and how you cut your hair a long time ago? <laughs> how you dressed a long time ago? It's easier nowadays with all these phones. You know, you could, I could scroll 20 years backwards, you know. Think back, huh? There's some young people in this room. I think back to some choices you made when you were 10. How about when you were 15? How about some of the decisions you made when you were 20? Don't you look back at these things and sometimes think, what an idiot. <laughs> what was I thinking? Why would I have ever done that? See, It's because you were simple until God's word came in, you see. And came in. Well, that's the case even as we became Christians. Sherry and I, we look back and the way 
we carried ourselves those first few years and how we carried ourselves as, as young parents and so forth. And the testimony of the Lord has been making us wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Precepts, statutes of the Lord. You know, this term only appears in the Psalms in the Old Testament. Only in the Psalms. And 21 of the 24 times it appears in the Psalms is in Psalm 119. And you know that Psalm 119 is largely about the Word of God, right? There, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts, moral injunctions, uh, those things that God says that define and shape our, 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 our responsibilities in life as humans, as as male, female, parents, singles, and, uh, children of God, members of the body of Christ, one with another. Those statutes, precepts of the Lord, they are right. They are upright. They're, they're sound. And as a result, what do they do? They rejoice the heart. They bring joy to the heart. Not only when we see them and begin to probe them and understand them, but as we live them, as we feel the effects. I think what's going on here in part is David wants us to contrast this to what he's just said about the life of the simple. Uh, those who have not been renewed by the word of God. The foolish. Think about that. When you look at the grief, when you look at the grief that some people experience for having rejected God's word, when you, for having followed one link on a website, for having thought that true purpose and joy and fulfillment lies outside the boundaries of what God's telling me because he's a killjoy. And you think about where they've ended up, you see. You understand that the, the, the precepts, the statutes of the Lord bring joy in comparison to that. Not without troubles in life. Whoever wants to live righteous in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But genuine joy. I don't know how or why, but I could tell you right now with absolute certainty that I know if this book hadn't come in my life, I would never have the kind of experience I've had with my family sitting around a table for lunch or the wife of 40 years and six grandsons. I can't tell you what it would look like, but I can tell you this, it wouldn't be that. I'm only talking about me. I'm not saying you. I'm saying I know that for me. I know this is, where it wouldn't, this is not where I would be, apart from these. And my heart rejoices. Let your heart rejoice. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. Notice he, he uses the singular. He doesn't say the commandments, not that it doesn't apply that way, but he wants you to see the law as a whole. You know, he's saying the commandment of the Lord. The law as a whole and what it says and what it says by what it points to in its, in its, in its imagery, in the shadows of, of the priestly service in the Old Testament, in the sacrifices, the all that God commanded, you see, as a whole, is, he says, pure. Everything in it 
says purity. It's absolutely without any pollution in it. It contains the beauty and reveals the beauty of God's holiness. That's what you see, you see. That's what David saw. He saw he would reflect on what it meant to, to, to know the law, to follow the law, to see the law in its, in its ceremonies and the sacrifices and the dressing and the sprinkling of blood and everything he saw. He says, the commandment of the Lord, pure. And what it does, he says, it enlightens the eyes. It enlightens the eyes. It's difficult to say exactly what he means, but I think he's speaking here, to, I think, about a spiritual enlightenment. That this is what David experienced, you see. What allowed him to see, that's the glory of God in creation. What allowed him to see that was having had his eyes enlightened through what God has said, you see. The commandment of the Lord and, what, and how, how God gave them instruction for approaching him in worship and so forth. All this enlightened his eyes to the nature of God, to holiness and to how a sinful person like David, an adulterer at one point in his life, could worship God and be, be acceptable. His eyes were enlightened to all this, you see. Apart from having our eyes enlightened, spiritually opened, people live in a state of darkness and spiritual blindness and confusion. Again, which is exactly where I was, with distorted views about God, if you even think about Him, but distorted views also about human beings and who, you, who we are and how we should treat one another. Therefore, you know, the uh, distorted view that leads to abortion, to infanticide, to murder, to abuse. See, that, is, that comes from eyes that have not been enlightened about God and those made in the image of God, human beings. But God's Word commandment of the Lord. Scripture enlightens the eyes. Ultimately, we can say, because it reveals to us Christ. It brings us to know who Christ is. For, for David, he saw the hope of Messiah who would be one from his own line and be a great king who would uh, rule over an eternal kingdom. But we know Messiah. Our eyes have been enlightened to be Jesus of Nazareth who came and who suffered in our place, who was tempted and yet did not submit to temptation and, and then was crucified for our guilt and sin and paid the full price, was raised from the dead the third day. If you believe that, it's because your eyes have been enlightened. Scripture, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we know, because we're told it's the Spirit working with the Word that, that gives light to our souls. And gives us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said these things, did he not? He pointed about this in many ways. He said in John chapter 5 and um, in verse 39 to scribes and Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures. What would he have been talking about? The Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. You say, well, I thought you said there's eternal life in the scriptures. Yeah, but he goes on to say, he goes on to say, it's they that bear witness about me, and you refuse to come to me. 
that you may have life, you see. You can't think that you have life simply because you memorize Isaiah and Hebrew. Because of your mastery of the order of the books of the Old Testament or the names of the prophets. What are they talking about? They're speaking of me, said Jesus. But you won't come to me that you might have eternal life. So there you see the enlightenment we need is not just to know about Scripture or to be able to cut Scripture, but to see the point of Scripture, which is God has made a way in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. The fear of the Lord. David goes on. Now at this point, he breaks the pattern. And now what he does is he uses a descriptive phrase, which is an attitude, right? A fear of the Lord, reverence, humility. He uses a descriptive phrase of, of something the word causes, and he places it for the word. So the fear of the Lord, which is caused, brought about by the word of the Lord, and so he places it in the place of the word. He's still talking about Scripture and by referring to it as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. There he once again continues here, this breaking, excuse me, the, the fear of the Lord is clean, yeah, enduring forever forever. Let's talk about that. The fear of the Lord, this descriptive phrase, what does it mean? It's, it's, it is the capacity to see God for who He is and be brought to humility before Him, to revere Him. And He says that you see here and that is revealed here and is brought about by what's in here. He says the fear of the Lord is clean, which means it's, it, it's, it's referring to, I think here, ritual purity, to be unclean referred to something that was corrupted or contaminated and defiled and therefore was not permitted in the presence of God. But he's saying the fear of the Lord, which you see here and is produced here, is clean. It is uncorrupt. There is no admixture here. And therefore, it endures forever. Jesus said, quoting the Old Testament, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Lastly, the rules of the Lord. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Rules has this idea of judgments, uh, decisions, we might say. The judgments of God, the decisions of God are just. They're, they're His decrees, and they're found here in the Bible, both by standards and by things that He, he, he judged. And He says they're true, and they're righteous. In other words, God never renders a wrong or false verdict. His verdicts, which He has rendered in a recording of Scripture, or His verdicts, His standards revealed in the law, they are never unjust. They are always just and righteous and perfect. And so God has set His standards for our lives. But there you have it. We'll stop there on that, those verses 7 through 9. Here is what? Here is, here is David admiring God's self-disclosure, his, his, his testimony, his witness to himself in His Word by what Scripture is 
and what Scripture does. The glory of God in creation is wonderful. It's one thing, but it doesn't convert. It does not bring a person to faith in Christ. We need the gospel for that. The enduring witness of God to himself in Scripture by what it is, what it reveals, what it does, it does, it does convert. It restores. It brings you back. It reveals your true identity. It leads you in the right way. It rejoices your heart. It illumines your life. So on this Reformation Sunday, we ask ourselves, sola scriptura, how do we respond to this book? How have you been responding to this book, beloved? How have you been responding? Do you run from it? Do you long for it? Here's a few responses. Consider the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah in chapter 15, 16 says, Your words were found... And I ate them. <laughs> I swallowed them up, I w- we would say today. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. I remember the appetite I had for God's word when I was first converted and I was still in, in the van. And, um, and I'd go to the, to the studio at night. No one was there. After, after rehearsal, everyone would leave. And I hadn't yet told them I'm, I'm freaking out and reading the Bible. So they didn't know. But they'd all leave, and I laid there, and I'd open this book, and I would read till 3 a.m., just going and going and going and going. Just, I couldn't get enough. As I was reading this book, the book was reading me. And it felt weird at first. (laughs) You drop it, and you go, how'd you know that? (laughs) How'd you know that about me? Because this is what the book does. And so Jeremiah says, I ate it up. Became the joy of my heart. You'll find countless responses to God's word in Psalm 119. Because you know, again, that's, it's filled with that. Let me just read a few of them out loud for you. I'm, I'm going to jump around, so don't, just, you just listen. Uh, uh, Scott prayed this one earlier. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. There's a prayer every time you open the Bible. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. (laughs) You ever feel like that? I'm I'm on a journey and I need light. (laughs) Don't hide them from me. Let me understand, Lord. He goes on, he says, Your testimonies are my delight. They're my counselors. Here's your counselors. Right here. He says, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. You been there? Maybe some of you are there this morning. Your soul melts because of sorrow. Where are you going to find strength? Real strength. Lasting strength. Strengthen me according to your word. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. God, I encourage you that someone who knew the word this well to write Psalm 119 could feel that bad. That's like you. 
But the word does what? Brings you back. <laughs> Brings you back. Well, what was David's response? We're going to end with that. Here's David's response in verses 11, uh, 10 through 14. We want to look here. There are four components to his response. And the first is he praises Scripture's exceeding value. In verses 10, 11, he says they are, his, God's rules are more to be desired are they than, than gold, even much fine gold. Let's stop there for a moment. What's he mean? He's saying that when you understand what you have in your hands here, and you know what this is, this should be worth more to you as it is to him, more desirable than gold, even fine gold. Is there anything wrong with gold? No. Scripture says there's nothing wrong with wealth, but the love of wealth leads to all sorts of problems, you see. But gold would be a great asset to have. But he says, when you understand what this is, it's more desirable than fine gold. It's worth more to David than, than wealth. And then he says, it's sweeter also than honey. And we're going to talk about honey. How about the drippings of the honeycomb? What's he talking about here? He's, well, he's talking here about a sensory experience. Wealth is one thing, power. But sensory experiences are the other things we seek in life. You know. And he says, here's one for you. How about honey? How about biting into a honeycomb that drips? He says, the Word of God, when you know what it is about, is more desirable than any sensory experience you might ever have in this life. See, what's going on here is that David's What's going on is that David's exposure to God's word has changed his desires. It's changed his desires. Has it changed yours? Has the word of God so altered your heart that certain things just seem empty now? That you'd rather go deeper with God? than buy that new thing. I know the longer and longer I soak in Scripture, and you know, I have the added advantage of being able to study every week, week in, week out. And these last two years especially have taught me, changed me, and that is I have much less attraction to stuff than to experiences. Just nothing compared to knowing God. And then what David does in his responses, the last three, I think, is that he, he faces his sin. He's ready to face his sin, and he seeks God's help as he does this. Here's a man whose heart is totally open before God. First of all, he seeks the acquittal that is revealed in Scripture for hidden sins. Things that he doesn't even know about himself. He says, who can discern his errors? David's saying, I know I've done things, and I don't even know I've done them. <laughs> I know I've thought things that I can't even remember. Who can discern the real motives of the things I've said at this point or did at that point? And then he cries out to God, declare me innocent from hidden faults. He knows he can't penetrate his own heart. You know, the Old Testament law, the law of God, provided for what were called those inadvertent sins. And that's the term here. It's related to that term right here. David's saying that he knows there's more in here than the Scripture has told him clearly, and he wants to be acquitted. 
from these hidden faults. He wants to be declared innocent. And that's what the term means. Found guiltless, he says. Declare me guiltless now. Now ask yourself this. Where would have David learned that a guy like him doing the stuff that he's done could be declared guiltless? In Scripture. <laughs> David read, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. David led, read the law. He knew there were sacrifices to account for hidden faults. And, and so that's where he gets the idea that a sinner could stand before God declared guiltless from Scripture. Praise the Lord for that. Um, we also have hidden sins, don't we? Sometimes the light of the truth seeks them out, reveals them. Other times it's just we, we lose them. We don't. There's things in there we don't even know. Psalm 90, verse 8 says, You have placed our secret sins in the light of your presence. God knows them, so David says, Acquit me from them. Forgive me. Then he goes on. He prays for preservation from um, the dominion of sin that he might not commit some sort of willful great transgression. Not those hidden sins of the heart and uh, motives that you can't see. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. You know, willful. I know it and I go ahead and do it. Let them not have dominion over me. Don't let them capture me. He's already prayed for acquittal, you see. And then having prayed for acquittal and asked for acquittal, he says, now help me. Give me restraint. Restrain me, Lord. Then I shall be blameless. He's not saying I shall live a perfect, sinless life. He's saying according to law. I'll be blameless. I will have handled my sin as your word tells me to. And I'll be innocent of great transgression. So think about what David's doing and saying here in the light of being a new covenant believer. This is, he has a desire to stand blameless before God, but he only has the capacity to ask for that after having also already confessed he knows there's sins in his heart and that he can't even see and he wants to be declared acquitted. I want to take this all the way to the, to the, to the fullest expression of being blameless that is brought about only through your faith in Christ. Have you thought about that? That you can be declared on the day of judgment before the living God, holy and blameless. That does not mean that you are intrinsically sinless, but that you stand before God, holy and blameless. And how will that possibly be? This is why Paul was accused of being a lunatic, right? What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, Paul writes to the church at Colossae and he says to them, verse 21 of chapter 1, and you, and you place yourself in this now. I'll place myself in this. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind towards God. That was me. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds that was you. That was me. 
He has now, He has now already, He has now reconciled, brought two parties together. How? In His body, Christ of flesh, by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach before Him. That is good news, beloved. Where did David get that idea? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is available to any one of you today if you're not sure you're a Christian. I tell you from the bottom of my heart, the worst thing that will ever happen and will never end is to stand before God and be judged on the basis of your choices, your decisions, your sins. But you can stand holy and blameless because God will credit to you by grace alone, through faith alone, the merits of Christ alone, and then you can give glory to God with the rest of us. <laughs> and that can happen today. This is the one thing you need to be sure about, young boy, young woman, young girl, anyone here, anyone watching, this one thing you need to be sure about is this. Will you stand as blameless before God? I didn't say, will you live a good enough life? I said, will you stand blameless? The only way is to have Christ's righteousness credited to you. His last response is what? He knows he's been talking about God's words and he wants his words to be like God's words, but he knows that words come from hearts. And so he prays this well-known prayer known to all of us. He says, let the words, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart from where the words come be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, O Yahweh, my rock, my refuge, and my redeemer, the one who saves me. A prayer that a Christian can pray. Because if you're a Christian today, God is your only rock, and he is your redeemer. The Bible may seem archaic. It may seem out of step. But it alone brings life and leads us to our Savior.